Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. to be here with Yehuda Mirsky, who is professor of Judaic and Israel Studies at Brandeis University. He worked in Washington, D.C. for a number of years, including a special advisor in the U.S. State Department's Human Rights Bureau during the Clinton administration. An ordained rabbi, he was, after the attacks of 9-11, a chaplain for the Red Cross. From 2002 until 2012, he lived in Israel, where he did policy research and was a grassroots activist in Jerusalem. He has written on religion, politics, and culture for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other publications. His Rav Cook, Mystic in a Time of Revelation, was established in 2014 by Yale University Press and was awarded the Jewish Book Council's Choice Prize. And the bio could go on and on. And as someone who has personally known Rabbi Dr. Yehuda Mirsky for some time, uh, he's someone who uh, is uh, incredibly uh, impressive in how he supports so many of us in the field at advancing his scholarship uh, through such a mention of So Yehuda, thank you for taking time. Thank you, my pleasure, Beer. Thank you so much. You would never call yourself this, but as as one of the top Rub Cook world experts, mm-hmm. I would love if in just a few minutes, uh, you could introduce uh, Rav Cook to those who are not familiar with him sure. and explain um, what what makes his writing so unique. Sure, of course, with pleasure. And again, thank you, thank you for having me. So, you know, Rav Cook is one of these figures that many of us, you know, we've heard something about him. His name comes up here and there, and you get the impression that this guy's really important, but you're not really sure how or what. And people seem to evoke him, quote him, cite him, and for all kinds of things and all kinds of purposes. Uh, we could talk about him for a very, very long time, but very briefly. Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook was born in 1865 in what today we call Latvia. Um, but for purposes of the Jewish world, this was Lithuania. This is the western edge of the Russian Empire, and this was Litvak country. Um, though it's helpful to know that on one side of his family, they were Litvaks. On the other hand, they were Lubavitch Hasidim. Uh, he passes away in 1935. So those are his years, 1865 to 1935. As you noted, the title of my book on him was mystic in a time of revolution, and this was a time of a lot of revolutions in the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world. Um, he is a rabbinic prodigy, etc., and early on develops an attitude of trying to integrate and understand the social, political, cultural, religious currents of his time in very interesting ways from within rabbinic tradition. He moves to Palestine, Eretz Israel, in 1904 to become the rabbi of Jaffa, Yafo, and the surrounding Jewish agricultural colonies, because there is no such thing as Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv doesn't get founded until several years later, but what that means is that he becomes the chief rabbi of the new Palestine, the new issue of the new Jewish community in the land of Israel. Um, in 1920, in 1919, he becomes the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. In 1921, he becomes the founder of the chief rabbinate 
up to 1921, under the Ottoman Empire, you had sort of these chief Jewish rabbis of the Ottoman Empire. But what you start in 1921 is as part of the Jewish community in Palestine building all kinds of institutions of its own. Now they're going to have a chief rabbinate of its own. Uh, reform, uh, excuse me, not a reform, and a Mizrahi, a Sephardic rabbi, and an Ashkenazi rabbi of European descent, and that's him. Um, and he holds that role until 1935. Now, the bare bones facts of him, uh, why do people talk about him, why is he known, is that he is both the founder of the chief rabbinate, which is a pretty important institution in um, the state of Israel down to today, um, as well as the first major rabbinic figure truly to endorse Zionism as a secular movement. Um, and those are you know, the things that are best known about him. And in some ways, I always say that those are in some ways the least interesting things about him because what makes him so interesting as a figure it's not just that he occupies these positions and creates these institutions and sort of somehow gives his endorsement to this movement. This is someone who, as a thinker, as a theologian, as a halachist, and as a remarkable mystic, sort of takes upon himself the conflicts and the contradictions of modern Jewish life right, between tradition and revolution, law and prophecy, right, between uh, rabbinic authority and the radicalism of Jewish socialists and Jewish pioneers. And he tries to develop both a worldview and a program that can somehow put it together. Amazing. And part of how he does this is as a Jewish mystic, he's deeply committed to the principle that God is everywhere. God is in you, God is in me, God is in universal perspective, as well as God is in the particular national perspective or the specific individual perspective. And he attaches great mystical significance to the land of Israel, to the people of Israel, as in, as, as, the point of meeting between God and the world. And this then um, leads to really interesting questions, which we'll talk about, that how does one interpret his legacy? There's parts of his legacy where he's very much about seeing the Jewish striving for justice, for ethics, um, for aesthetics in the arts, as very much of a piece with everything else that people of goodwill do all over the world. And yet there's ways in which the land of Israel and the Jewish people have very definite identities and very specific roles to play. And finally, he is able to hold these contradictions together because he sees the world as moving in a messianic direction. Right? Um, that, that, that the Zionist movement is an unwitting instrument of God's plan to redeem the world, along with other social justice movements. And as you can imagine, that's really engaging, inspiring perspective, and, and it's also rather um, combustible um, and can go in lots of different directions. So I wasn't planning to ask you this, but because you brought up his panentheism, um, and By which you mean the idea that God is in everything. It, it, that God is beyond- everything is in God, so to speak. 
beyond everything and in everything or all right. within that. And um, so I wonder, that's obvious within human beings. That's obvious within nature and the, the concrete world of substance. But in the, in the realm of ideology, what is the intellectual process of discernment to find divinity within ideology, within the realm of ideas? That's a really excellent question. I think for him, a key word is idealism. So when you see, for him, if you see a person or an individual, a group moving towards something like justice, solidarity, kindness, humility, We'll say, okay, there's God at work for you. Where for him, and part of what's interesting is that some of this comes from his abstract reflection, because he's a staggeringly learned man. And a lot of it comes from his own experiences. And part of what's so interesting and riveting about him is his way of opening himself up to all kinds of experiences. Um, so for him, where where say a passage that's actually especially pertinent nowadays, right? Is if you see somebody express someone or a group expressing themselves entirely in terms of anger, okay, that's not where God is. Right. Um, you know, if you see folks who are angry all the time, that's a sign that as far as he's concerned, in a very deep sense, they don't believe in God because to believe in God isn't to believe in the ultimate goodness of the world, the ultimate goodness of people. And anger is a sign of empathy. Now, this is also part of what's so interesting with him is that he's deeply committed to the halakha. And part of why he's deeply committed to, and his commitment to the halakha also make, gives him a kind of a principle of structure and order that he's never going to quite allow himself to get carried away by things. Um, and he will, when he sees other people violating halakha and where this gets put to the test all the time, is with the secular pioneers in Palestine. They'll say, well, if somebody is, is violating halakha on the basis of moral principles, solidarity, concern for others, doing commitments not by writing checks, but by actually putting their lives on the line for something like this, well, that I need to respect. He's not going to say it's correct all the way down, right? I mean, I, you know, for him, his ultimate vision is one in which both relig what, what we call religion and what we call secularity both sort of transcend themselves. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's, a long, that's a long way off. But I think that's where his being a Litbach is not just a fact of biography. Um, you know, this respect for law and structure and as indebted as he is to the Jewish mystical tradition, he's just as indebted to Maimonides. Right. It takes that perspective on religious life very seriously. Amazing. Thank you so much. So, so it makes sense why the secular pioneers would have a respect for him. It makes sense why religious people who love Torah would have a respect for his scholarship. Now, what, what is the intellectual uh, contribution he has to make? What made him one of the intellectual leaders of the Israeli religious Zionist community? Uh, well, I would say be, before we... Okay, so two things. 
In terms of like people respecting him and not, yes and no. Yes and right. What's right. really interesting is to read the responses of how secular, um, seculars, you know, pioneering intellectuals, activists responded to him. Some really liked him and thought, wow, this is great. And I really, I'm not, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I really appreciate this. And there were others who, a lot of them had very traditional backgrounds and knew exactly where he was coming from. And they really rejected this because they'd saying like, Rabbi, I'm not part of your messianic vision, okay? Don't you get it? I'm actually rebelling against you, right? Don't try to, don't cast me, right. the player, in some sort of messianic drama that I don't think I'm living. Right. Um, on the other hand, also, the more traditional sectors um, and sort of what we call today Haredim or ultra-Orthodox were violently opposed to him. There's a wonderful exchange where uh, his opposite number in the Haredi world of the time, Yosef Chaim Zunenfeld, one said, you know, Rabbi Cook is always saying that you have to look at these people's deep motivations and this and that. I don't need to look at their deep motivations. They tell me they hate me. I believe them. They tell me they're rebelling against Tehran Mitzvot. I have no reason to disbelieve them, right? Um, and, and you're dangerously blurring the lines. You're dangerously blurring the lines. And some of them would also have argued that Rabbi Cook, yes, you're a man of very profound ethical sensibility. But other people might not have such ethical sensibilities, and just by blessing nationalism and blessing secularism, you're giving rein to all kinds of things. Why, though, was he so important uh, for so many people? First off, just on a very basic level, if we take a look at how did religious Jews respond to the Zionist movement, right? And especially nowadays, when in the organized Jewish community, support for the state of Israel is a wall-to-wall -wall thing. We forget how contested and how argued and how debated it was for so long. And we look at how, how most religious and traditional Jews responded to the Zionist movement, Orthodox rabbis, for lack of a better word. How did they respond to it? You know, you tended to have two responses in the early decades. One was that this is the work of the devil. You know, these unchurched, so to speak, Jews, right? Theodore Herzl, who's totally assimilated, wouldn't know a sidur if it fell on him, has made himself king of the Jews, is going to... Um, announced that the Jewish people are returning to the land of Israel, and according to the tradition, God decides when the Jewish people return to the land of Israel. And they return to the land of Israel, not by being faithless and assimilated, but by being good, pious Jews. And also this whole assertion, this ethos of Zionist self-assertiveness, and Jews are going to do their own diplomacy and do their own politics, runs totally against the currents of rabbinical political thought for generations. That's one thing. Then you have the other groups of Orthodox rabbis who say, you know, of the different ideas and programs on offer to enhance, to deal with anti-Semitism, to deal with Jewish poverty, to deal with Jewish social dislocation, while keeping lock some semblance of community because to go to America is to like entirely assimilate, this is not a bad idea, but please, Zionists, don't tell us that you're reconstructing Jewish culture, that this is a Jewish cultural renaissance revolution, leave Jewish culture to us. And then you have Rabbi Cook who says, actually, no, Zionism is a good thing precisely because it's revitalizing Jewish culture. And part of his part of what he's arguing to his rabbinic peers is he's saying, look at these secular Zionist revolutionaries, they're not rebelling against us because they want to eat cheeseburgers. They're not looking for easy lives. They're going to Palestine, they're building socialist communes, they're saying we're not taking good care, we're not taking good enough care of poor Jews. They're right. They're saying that our Jewishness has become desiccated and it's become empty and it's become soulless. They're right. Now he says, I don't think I should throw away the whole thing but I have to accept their critiques as legitimate. And he gives Jews who want to work with Zionism um, um, a, a not just an ex post, you know, you know, it's not such a bad idea, you can work with them, 
but a principal justification for why this is a good thing. This is a good thing. This is actually, this is not delaying, this, this is not against messianic hopes. This is not putting messianic hopes to the side. This is precisely how messianic hopes are going to be realized by participating in this. So you're, and it's not like, okay, I'll be a Jew on Shabbat, and for the other six days a week that I'm participating in Jewish life in the land of Israel, it's kind of like what I'm doing. No, your participation during the six days of the week in building a community, in putting down plumbing somewhere, in planting a furrow, in opening a post office for a new Jewish community in Palestine as part of the Jewish national renaissance is itself a worthwhile thing to do. So for all those reasons, he then becomes, that's how, that's why how he becomes chief rabbi, because he's like the indispensable man for all sorts of people who are trying to square the circle of the Zionist revolution in Jewish tradition. Love that. Uh, and I'm, I, I've been inspired by that vision for a long time. And I've had to learn how to both uh, respect one's motivations while also not declaring them uh, my own. I, I recall in a grad school seminar over 15 years ago, someone yes. in secular philosophy class said they were an atheist. And I said, oh, actually, one of my leading teachers, Rev Cook, says, you can't be an atheist because, of course, your soul is truly yearning for God. And they were incredibly offended by my... <laughs> right. I mean, there's, by the way, there's some analogies in modern Christian thought. Yeah. When you have, you know, sort of Christian, Christian church people who are resisting Hitler and they needed to make sense of secularists who were resisting Hitler and they said that they were unconsciously Christian. <laughs> and so to me, there's one way of looking at that, which is, yeah, that's just sort of condescension and not being able to deal with secularism. If you're doing it in a reflective way, you're sort of saying it's sort of like the underlying structure of these folks' actions only makes sense if they feel that they are answering to a higher authority, if they feel that there's some moral principles that are, are larger than. Yeah, great. So, so my, my, my last question for you um, is, uh, you know, I mean, nobody knows what Rod Cook would think today, but right. if, if somebody did, you'd be one of the few who would. <laughs> and so well, what, what would he think of the religious Zionism today as it's manifest? And, and okay. what, what, how would he make sense of the state of Israeli religious Zionism community? Today? Well, you know, in terms of that's actually an extremely live question. Why? Because starting in the 1970s, Rav Cook's son, as you know, Rav Cook's son, Svi Cook, who succeeded his father as the head of the important yeshiva that he founded, said that he knew exactly what his father would say. And his father would say, go and settle the hilltops of Judea and Samaria and planting the flag of Israeli sovereignty on one hilltop after another is itself part of the redemptive process. And if my father were alive today, that's what he would tell you to do, right? So much of the settler movement arose. I mean, sort of like the, the you know, the, the, history, the history of Jewish settlement in the West Bank and Gaza is complicated. I would just recommend to everybody to read Gershom Gorenberg's The Accidental Empire, magnificent book on the first decade of uh, Israeli settlement activity. It had lots of pieces. But you can't begin to tell this story without reckoning with the settler movement, what was called Gushom, the Block of the Faithful, whose spiritual leader was Rav Kook's son, And so... That's one set of arguments that people give, right? That this is exactly what Rav Kook would tell you to do, right? Others said, well, not so fast, because a crucial fact, as I mentioned, Rav Kook died in 1935. So he never saw the Holocaust. He never saw the actual existing state of Israel, at, which appeared in 1948, which, of course, was, um, which, of course, 
didn't exactly live up to all sorts of people's ideas about what they thought what they thought the Jewish state uh, would look like. Rip Cook was a very idealistic man. Um, he had there were in, as a thinker, for instance, he didn't reckon with the will to power. He didn't much write or think or talk about people doing. He was a very again idealism is a key word for him. He thought people were very idealistic in their motivations, so he didn't reflect much on people who do stuff because they actually want power over other human beings. Mm -hmm. He didn't think much about the profit motive. He didn't. He didn't. He, he didn't grasp. He didn't see. He didn't sort of like wealth creation for its own sake is not something that he thought much as a motive force in in human um, affairs. Um, what and so in some ways, like the answer to your question, what would Cook say today? You know, there's the procedural question of, like a, a large debate is the procedural question of, is that the question to ask? Mm -hmm. You know, is that the question to ask what this man who died in 1935 would have said today? Especially also because his thought is of many parts. So there are, because his thought is so capacious, um, there are the universalistic dimensions of his teachings and there are the nationalist dimensions of his teachings and there are the highly personal subjective expressive dimensions of his teachings. And there's some people who will focus on one and not focus on the other. And even among his disciples, his media disciples, you saw different emphases. One thing that you can be sure of Cook, if I think, it really hurt him when he saw people tearing one another apart. So much of what he was about was trying to create an ethics of principled disagreement where you respect people's differences, right? There's one passage in his writings, which I'm sure you know, where he talks of, it's written about 1910 or so, when he talks about what he saw as the three camps of his time in the Jewish world, the nationalists, the ethical universalists, and so to speak, the religionists. And he says, each one has a part of the truth. And the sacred, the holy, the Kodesh, the godly, is that which connects all of them together because God is that, it gets back to the panentheism, right? God is, is he who connects everyone in motion, moving forward towards the future, right? And so, you know, ideally, you know, I should, if I'm an ethical universalist, I should appreciate nationalists for their sense of solidarity and I should appreciate religionists for their sense of the divine. And if I'm a nationalist, I should like, I emphasize solidarity, but I should understand, like, from a godly perspective, universal ethics is a good thing. And from a godly perspective, even there's something beyond this world, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and the you know, the religionists should perceive, you know, the, the virtues of solidarity and the virtues of universal ethics as a religion person while plowing your furrow. I mean, what's crucial with Rav Cook in terms of as, some, as a thinker who's a resource for pluralism is that he's not about wishy-washy splitting the difference, don't believe in anything very passionately. Right, right. Believe in your, take your beliefs with great passion, but understand that God is greater than all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a great humility. Yeah. That I think it's fair to say that he would, the sort of the bitter, bitter arguments. Yeah, yeah. That would have, I think, wounded him grievously. Amazing. You know, the other reason I think it's it's such a difficult question is because, and tell me if I'm oversimplifying, but as someone who's kind of taken by Hegelian thought, the dialectical tensions within time, right. he's not abstract, he's not imposing abstract ideas on abstractions, but rather truly responding to the era. Um, and as you right. pointed out, with almost 100 years, almost 100 years of development, 
the idea of applying something from that era now itself is absurd in such a framework. So, and it can go in different directions. You know, from the right, if you take a look at the most recent election campaign that just ended a few days ago, like Ayala Chakade's party had this like really interesting political commercial saying, look at when Rav Cook was talking about secular Israelis, who did he meant? He meant these self-sacrificing poet revolutionary types. He didn't mean, you know, godless, hedonistic, high-tech people from Tel Aviv, right? And it's also from the left, right? One can say when Rav Cook is talking about all these great glories of the, the, the Jewish people because he never really dealt with the experience of power. Mm-hmm. Like so many people, he had trouble imagining Jews with power and certainly Jews abusing power. Beautiful. Well, friends, I, I hope you'll continue to follow Rabbi Dr. Yehuda Mursky's writing. Thank you. And, and Thank you. This is a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate so it.